Attention, attention, all personnel, incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Over and out. Welcome to MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television series of all time, MASH. And MASH is where you found this guy, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Ryan Patrick. How are you? What the heck's going on? What's new? What's shaking? What's going oh, down? Lots. Yeah? Yes. Lots, lots, lots going mm-hmm. on. I'm in a musical right now. We, can't, we talked about this on our live stream, which, by the way, if you missed our live stream, just go to the website and click on episodes and you'll see a replay link there where you can watch our epic live stream that we did a few <laughs> weeks ago. But I'm, I'm in a musical. I'm in Fiddler on the Roof. Ooh. Actually, when this episode is being released, the show is happening. At that very moment. Wow. By the time you listen to this, chances are the show is over and, you know. Was it any good? It was fantastic. How were you? Were you good? I mean, I hope so. I nailed it. Oh, all right. Not, I don't want to brag. <laughs> yeah, I've probably just tempted the theater gods by saying that. I'm going to fall into the pit and land on a tuba or something. Out there. Just just you wait and see. Well, I'm sure you're going to be terrific. And if anybody is in that area, go see Fiddler on the Roof starring... Ryan Patrick. Hey, we have a kind of a cool episode today. We've done a lot of great interviews on this podcast throughout the years, and they've all had the running theme of being connected to the series or connected to someone in the series. This might be our first interview where the person that we're talking to isn't necessarily connected really at all with the series, but has a major connection to the Korean War. Jeff, would you please introduce our guest today? It's Mr. Harvey Kalmanson, and Mr. Harvey Kalmanson and his wife, Kathy Kalmanson, own a um, company called Kalmanson & Kalmanson. That company started out many years ago as being a casting agency for voiceover work. So if you uh, were an actor and you wanted to do a, a part on a commercial or a television show, you were probably sent by your agent to Kalmanson & Kalmanson to audition. I did that a few times myself. I think I actually booked a few jobs out of Kalmanson and Kalmanson. And Kalmanson and Kalmanson was a really interesting place because you go to a lot of different uh, casting directors across the Los Angeles <laughs> tapestry when you're auditioning. But Kalmanson and Kalmanson was always a place that when you walked in there, you knew that you were going to be respected as an actor and the material that you were going to get was going to be pretty cool stuff. Uh, when you walked in the door, the staff was nice. Everybody was there. The scripts were there. You had an opportunity to look at the material. Kathy was there and she was a charming person. It was very helpful. And then when you actually had to go audition, you go into a, a little soundproof room and there was Harvey Kalmanson sitting behind a glass booth. He was the director and he was going to audition you. And so you walked up to the microphone and you read the thing. Hey, if you want to buy a new Ford, you got to go to Ford 2 today. It's really a great place to get a Ford. <laughs> and so he, and he would say, oh, don't do it. That, well, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but you knew that whatever Harvey said to you as you auditioned, it was valuable. Because this guy had, had worked with over 400 celebrities over his career. Even Orson Welles. I mean, this guy had wow. auditioned Orson Welles. Nursing. So, you know, he knew what he was talking about. Now, they as a business have even expanded into classes. So if you want to be a voiceover actor, you can call up Kalmanson and Kalmanson and, and learn all about the uh, the classes or just go to the Kalmanson.com and you're going to see all the really great stuff about Kathy and Harvey. But Harvey, now Harvey 
is showbiz. He's been in showbiz for a long time, over 40 some odd years. But he was also in Korea in 1953. Mm-hmm. So he has experiences about Korea and about his impressions of Korea as opposed to his impressions about MASH and whether they matched correctly. Did MASH get it right? Did, did, Korea, did Korea get it right? Yeah. <laughs> Which one got it right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So we thought that it would be a very interesting thing because we've never had a veteran. We've never had a Korean veteran on our show. It's a rare opportunity to be able to do this, to speak to somebody who was actually in Korea during the war in the service. I mean, he was Corporal Harvey Kalmanson. He had a lot of great stories. You're going to hear a lot of great stories. Um, the uh, the director's cut of this would take you all day to listen to because Harvey had so many great stories. Mm-hmm. It's a, just a great opportunity to talk to somebody who had that firsthand experience. Hey, well, why don't, without any further ado, why don't we let Harvey Kalmanson talk about Harvey Kalmanson and let him tell us all those great stories. Some of the things that are really vitally important today is that the kids today don't know about the American soldier. And the American soldier, firsthand, There's no one as pleasant to be around than American guys. American guys age 19 are nothing more than kids themselves. So when we all got to Korea, the American soldiers take over and the kids gravitated to us like you couldn't believe. I'd like to talk, if I could, about the quality of the American soldier when I joined the United States Army. What year was that? That was 1953, the beginning in January. Not quite halfway through that year of 53, I had completed basic training where for some reason they put me into a combat engineer group for basic training. So basic training is about eight to 12 weeks, half of which in the con- they give you your special training. So ha- the first half is infantry for everybody. So you learn how to use a rifle and how to march and all of that. And then after that, they assign you to what you're going to finish basic training, which was combat engineers. And I didn't know until I was in it that the life expectancy for a combat engineer ain't very good. Yikes. In a place like Korea, because Reason that giving you the infantry training and a special training time period in bomb disposal, mine disposal, rather, is a technical word for it. They're planning something for you. Hmm. And so when you get into the service, and I began upsetting certain people because the army felt right in giving me assignments to teach somebody. Now, you got to understand, I'm 19 years old, and they're handing me a pamphlet. And I'm teaching the next day on what I read in the pamphlet. I didn't know what the hell I was reading. (laughs) But somehow, when they bring you in, they have an idea of what you can do. So ended up in a combat engineer thing, but not right away. First, they decided to put me in what they call INR, Intelligence and Reconnaissance. It turns out people who have had some theater background as a stage manager 
has a pretty good eye for remembering things. <laughs> yes. I didn't know any of that, <laughs> but I grew up around people that were infusing me with these things. So what happens when your child, and I said I owed it to my dad, he was training me to take orders from the time I was a little kid. If I wanted to turn out to be a baseball player, I had to know how to take orders because they're going to give you orders to learn the game. Yeah. Now I want to get into when we came through and we're now getting ready for basic training. So here we are. I was not a patriot. I joined because I wanted to get it out of the way so that I could check into college. And now here I am telling my folks in a car, when we get back from Arizona, I'm going to have a letter from the president of the United States saying, greetings, you are now invited to join the United States Army. Mm -hmm. That's the way they did it in that era. The beauty of this thing, what we had in that era and all of the people that were in MASH, and we showed all the things that were happening in MASH, the vast majority of those people had been part of being drafted into the service. That meant that the guy sitting next to you could be somebody who's a genius in a particular thing. And that explains how I got into combat engineers without even knowing it. I had some skills that I didn't even know about. They had some way of figuring it out. This is great. And what I think is so interesting about you in terms of MASH and the television show is that, one, you are a veteran. Thank you for that. Uh, you were in Korea at a very specific time. And you you know that experience from a very personal level, and which is you've already talked about that. So the idea of the show, and you are a fan of the television show MASH. Yes, I was. And the movie. And the movie. So you can look at that, and that's show business, and that's a fantasy uh, written by terrific writers and used a lot of accuracy, I know, went into the writing in terms of what Larry Gelbart did because he researched, you know, the, the people who were really there. Yes. But still, I, I'm so interested in knowing because you have this tremendous history and understanding of the business, of show business, plus you have the personal experience of actually being in Korea. And I'm wondering if there is a sort of a, a picture or a perspective you can share with us that that may give you, that it doesn't give other people who weren't in Korea and don't understand it and, and also don't have that understanding necessarily about show business. Absolutely. When I started out by telling you about our barracks, that tells you who had been selected. They called it selected service at the time. Mm -hmm. It was drafted army. And that means any country that has a, a requirement that every one of the citizens must join the service for a certain period of time, men and women, are the best you're going to find anywhere. Not by their original design, but because of what the overall surroundings do to you. The guy who had the bunk patty corner away from me ended up and... Uh, he retired from the job, so he wouldn't mind me. His name was Norm Kotler, and he ended up being the managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Wow. He was a private in our army barracks taking basic training with me. Here's a guy who's a literary. He's already has the intellect you can't believe. 
And he's in a bunk as a private, and he's the world's biggest klutz because he had no athletic skills whatsoever. <laughs> Please don't print that. because <laughs> He wouldn't mind because he was a klutz. Okay. He should not have been in our group. Ne- next to him was an attorney. These are all people being drafted. Now, can you imagine the United States Army had half and half or three quarters and one quarter depending on what kind of a group you were with. Most of those groups came from states that had well-oiled armies of their own. Each state in the United States has a division of people who are putting time in. In California, it was the 40th division. Oklahoma was the 45th division. New York had a different one. That was the basis for our country, and that's how selective service started way back to the Revolutionary War, if you're interested. That doesn't exist today. Mm -hmm. That means the Army is missing something that we had. The guy next to you is a genius at engineering. Another guy can back any kind of a vehicle up, forward, backwards, sideways, it doesn't matter. That's the kind of people who were in our Army. They also had a rich understanding of the humanness of the guy next to you. Some big brute of a guy could be sitting there crying about not seeing his mom or his kids. Another guy's getting a letter they used to call Dear John letters. Yeah. At 19, somebody's going to break up with you. So that's what we all were facing. It was the cream of the American crop. And most of us who were drafted, and I was drafted, I volunteered for the draft. That sped the things up. So when we got back from Arizona, my mother and father were shocked that here was the telegram. Greetings. That's what it said. It opened with greetings from the President of the United States. You'll report to Tarada for medical examination and induction. Now, because I volunteered, it meant that if I passed the medical that day that I reported, it was bye-bye time. So passed the Medical examination, it was the first and only time I watched my dad cry. Really? He had driven me to Union Station and waved goodbye. Now, you got to remember, the rate of people being killed in Korea at that time was really high. So that's the story of me getting in there and being exposed for the first time of marching in a parade with the American flag. That's when I became a patriot. It was just an instant thing. We stood up there, got in ranks. We're in Fort Lewis, Washington. This major comes out to talk to all of us. He was going to lead the parade. I figured another one of these yokels, right? (laughs) That flag went up and John Philip Sousa's music hit. Game's over, boys. Yeah. You either become nobody or you become something that the country's proud of. Wow. That's the way it was. So when I saw MASH, I identified with it because of the people that were at that MASH hospital. Now, I want to get into a story about visiting a MASH hospital because it was a fluky coincidence. Basic training is over. We learn how to build bridges. We learn how to do this. We learn how to do that. Now I'm in Korea. Excuse me, we went to Japan first. They take you by way of Japan so you can zero in your rifles or whatever weaponry you've been trained in. And then they take you from Japan to Korea 
and we landed at Enchon because there was still no real harbors that could take our vessels. So it was the kind of landing vehicles that still existed where the front of the boat opened up and you dare not call it a boat with Navy guys around because that's enough to get you into the fight. It's a ship. Don't call my ship a boat. Okay. And they made nasty remarks about, oh, you, all you Californians are the same. What do you think you are? Are you on a yacht? You know, they, they still do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we come to Korea and all of a sudden is a complete change of environment when you get into a combat zone. You begin seeing things you didn't intend seeing, especially when you go to parts of Asia. We came through and it was the first time I had ever seen a dead body in the street. That is not fun when you're 19 years old. I mean, it just takes the wind out of your sails. And it helped me to decide that I wasn't going to take the choice. They offered me a choice. I could either be in graves registration or bomb disposal, mine disposal. Wow, what a choice. I chose mine disposal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh. because you've got to understand, the enemy didn't take care of their dead bodies the way we did. Graves registration involved enemies. I am looking up here at the, the uh, pictures that I have. I have one in particular which shows an enemy's cemetery. The enemy didn't build that cemetery. It was engineers, combat engineers that gave them the proper burials. Wow. And the public doesn't know about that. The humanity of the United States is unequaled. Okay. You stop to think. 19-year-old guys taking care of enemy and people, guys who have lost a buddy or something like that. So it's a growing up time that you didn't expect. Yeah. And we gravitated towards the kids because they had nobody. They were walking around without parents. And so the United States, all those people that were shown on MASH, one way or another, they had their turn to take care of human beings that weren't Americans. They happen to be Koreans. And no one equals that, that can even match people from the United States. The people who don't know that will never know it. They'll never appreciate it. They don't get it. It's why you don't see very many veterans in conversations with the general public. They'll talk, you'll find them talking from one veteran to another. So you, you were going to talk about the MASH hospital that you... When I was in the center waiting to go to Korea on whatever the troop ship was called, we were in that center. It was in some place in Washington, hordes and hordes of guys. And it was a beautiful day and... They're not going to send me to jail because they're already getting ready to send me to Korea. <laughs> and so I decided I was going to take the day off. So a few of my buddies and I, we jumped off the back of the truck that was taking us to work duty. So we jump off the back. We're out playing around and sunbathing on the lake. And when we come back, there's this group of guys that are at a relaxing center for the troops. Okay. I go in there. And here's this guy. He looks so familiar to me. I came to California from Brooklyn in 1947. And there, standing right next to me, is my little cousin <laughs> from Brooklyn that I hadn't seen from the time I was a little kid. Wow. His name was Otto Siegel. I said, Otto, he says, and he's got a heavy Brooklyn accent. I lost mine in California. <laughs> he still talks like he's from the street. He says, Harvey, we hug one another. I said, "Where? what's going on here? He says, eh, I'm going to Korea. 
I said, well, I'm going to Korea, too. I'm impersonating him. He's getting angry. And Otto was the tough one in the family. I mean, he 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 thought of nothing of getting into a fist fight on the street. Hmm. That's the kind of guy he was. I said, so what are you involved with? He says, I'm with these medical training things. Okay. Now, will you kiss and say goodbye? I'm off to Korea by way of Japan. And God knows where he goes. Now, I'm in Korea. And I'm doing my job and things are going. And finally, three days later, they come out with a letter. July 27th, 1953, at 9 p.m., the fighting was suspended. And they warned you, the guns are going to stop firing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't keep taking care of yourself. And they give us all different assignments. And mine was to go to, they put me in a Eighth Army Leadership School. I didn't volunteer. I had qualified for leadership school. I didn't know what I was getting into. And it was a very interesting experience. The general comes out and you report to him and you salute and you say, uh, Private Harvey Calmonson reporting as ordered, sir. He returns your salute, hands you your diploma. I still have that 70 from 70 years ago. I had sent it home to my folks and written something on the back. I have it framed. It's in my library now. Every so often, I take a look at it. The whole story comes back. He instantly, the general instantly promotes you, and you go from being a private to a corporal. Now you're a non-commissioned officer as a corporal. What you don't realize is that just took you away from everybody else. And you're going to be getting assignments just like you were a general. If everybody gets killed and they're only left with one or two guys, say, are there any non-commissioned officers here? That takes in sergeants, corporals. And all of a sudden, you find yourself doing things you had no intention of doing. That went on at MASH as well. Because we all followed the same doctrine. Bombs go off. You don't know who's going to be here tomorrow. Somebody has to do it. In the United States Army, everybody gets equal training. When people talk about racism and stuff, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Because when people are frightened, there's no racism. The guy who's covering your ass, that's the guy you love. <laughs> a bunch of grown men hugging one another. There's a reason we're scared. Anybody who said they were frightened, it's full of crap. Yeah, of course. So I'm now finished with leadership training, and now the part where they designate intelligence and reconnaissance clicks in. I know it gets a little jumbled up, but what happens is when someone is disabled, somebody else has to take his place. And so if you're qualified, they move you around. And when you graduate from leadership school, they're going to move you around different places. And this gets to be very funny because I got to go to places because of intelligence and reconnaissance, they give me what they called an emergency Jeep driver's license. That means I can go any place. And if I run into an MP, military police, just show them that. And it allows me to go in and out of wherever I am. No questions asked. Right. Wow. Yeah. So now a guy in this particular company goes a little wacky. We used to call it bananas in those days. And somebody has to drive him to a hospital. The only person around was Harvey Kellington, and I had the Jeep 
vision in my license that I could go anywhere. And he said, here, take this guy to this pub, uh, something MASH hospital. So now I drive all the way up. And this MASH hospital was right by the 38th parallel. So I dropped the guy off. I couldn't wait for him to get out of the Jeep. <laughs> I, I don't want to get into what was wrong with him, but I didn't feel very comfortable. Anyway, I get to the MASH hospital. I drop him off. And I go into their headquarter building and I said to this rather attractive nurse, I hadn't seen a woman in a long, long time. And I had to come up with something. So I said, you know, just a shot in the dark. I'm looking for this cousin of mine. She says, yeah, okay. well, I'll be glad to help out who you're looking for. I said, oh, his name is Otto Siegel. She says, oh, you mean Artie. (laughs) Artie's running RPX. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I go in there and he greets me like we had, it wasn't by luck or anything like that. It's like he expected it. He says, Harvey, or as he said, hot. <laughs> I said, what are you doing here? He says, I'm running. I run the whole PX. And I'm saying, oh, my God, look who they put in charge. <laughs> he wasn't me. And now he takes me in a back room. And here are these crates piled up almost to the ceiling in what we used to call Quonset huts. And there's about three feet from the top of the crate to the ceiling. I said to him, why, what is this, some kind of a health thing where you you don't put any of the supplies all the way up to the ceiling? Why is there this space? And you swear it was Frank Sinatra telling this story. He says, that's where we put the broads. (laughs) Oh. I said, what? He says, yeah, we got guys coming in from all these companies all over the place. This was not in a MASH episode, by the way. <laughs> if it was, I will stand corrected. He says, I have, I put sleeping bags on top. Oh, the entire wow. ceiling of the Quonset hut had sleeping bags. And he had his own business going. Wow. <laughs> How they got up to the top, I don't know. <laughs> but these are supposed to be wounded guys. How they got to a MASH hospital, I don't know. Huh. Well, that was the last time I saw Otto. <laughs> I wonder what he does for a living now. Instead of, hmm. uh, I don't know yeah. if they pay him in jail. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, you know what? I'm at the point now, I'm starting to look around. I uh, my list of people that I've directed, most of them aren't around anymore. So it's been a long time because next November 28th, I'll be 90 years old. So Wow. Well, you look terrific. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that truthfully. You, you don't look like you're going to be 90 years old. Yeah, and I'm not fully made up. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You've got you've to keep laughing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And back to the troops. No one has a sense of humor as American guys. Well, the story about the guy and having, you know, mattresses up (laughs) where he had them in that business, that is very mashy. I mean, isn't it? That's a real kind of mash sort of idea that they could have explored. I could see it more in the movie than the show, but yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The movie was a life-changing thing. Really? And in what way? Well, I didn't think that they would have the nerve to to bring that forward like that because the uh, we were all cut. We were all in the same boat. 
and there's other things. I mean, I could tell you stories about the military police. Uh, we knew their schedule. They knew ours. We knew where the off-limits areas were that American soldiers weren't supposed to go. We'd go there anyway. The military police knew where we were going, what we were doing. The Korean people had ways of hiding us in the floors of their homes. <laughs> of course, all the floors would, were made out of dirt, and the heat was in the floors. So it was a reason and a place for us to hide. And when the military police would come through looking for us who were in the village having a good time, we knew in advance they were on the way because the Koreans had a way of letting us know. No GI here. No GI here. No GI. <laughs> okay. And so at daybreak, when the military police changed from one group to another, we had X amount of time to run from where we were to an area that the military police were not allowed to go to. So that means we were home free. They were changing the guard and you saw American guys running around all over the place getting out of the woods. <laughs> I was always hoping they would show that in MASH one day. but <laughs> So were you, a, were you a bigger fan of the film than you are necessarily of the, of the television version of that life? Or is that a fair thing to say? I, I wouldn't be able to answer that honestly because the, the film came out and uh, they changed the way they cast it so much. It was a different thing. And it was interesting. The guy came through the one. That, I think they had the dentist that went into, uh, he passed out or something. Mm -hmm. So they took him away. And I think that's when the music came up and there was the lead song was Suicide is Painless. Painless, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a horrible thing. Yeah. It's pretty hard to come back to this country without being affected by what you thought you were leaving behind and when you get back to the country. So I can identify with the guy who I wasn't planning on suicide. That's not what I'm getting at, but I could identify with that guy who had the role. Yeah, he was going to he was going to commit suicide, I think. That's what he was all about. Yeah. And yeah. I think they drugged him, didn't they? If I'm not mistaken, they gave him They gave him a drug that made him think he was Killing yeah, himself, he but he, he yeah, just put him into yeah, a yeah. very deep, deep sleep. Yeah. But that movie made a, quite a commotion in all of the neighborhoods here near where, where I lived. And the only thing that came close to that was the first Rocky movie. Mm -hmm. Everybody came out of that first Rocky movie that it was the greatest thing they've ever seen. And it was similar to The Godfather. Yeah. Do you, do you, your history in Korea, is there a, a gap, or maybe I'm using the wrong word, I don't know, between your experience and what you see on the television show? It, you know, can you say, hey, they're not getting that right, or they didn't get that right, or they are getting that right? The thing that I like that they watch out for is not to hurt anybody. Hmm. They didn't present anything that really hurt people which is one of the things I liked about MASH. One of the things I didn't like about MASH is that they really couldn't get into the nitty-gritty about how bad it was. It just, you know, the color was good, the storytelling is good and stuff, but your surroundings are horrible. I mean, think about it. They didn't have a wind chill factor. We didn't know what wind chill factor was in that era. So when they tell you it's 
30 below zero and you have to go outside to urinate, that's quite an adventure. <laughs> oh, oh, which leads me to a very funny story, which is really not funny. That could have been in, it would have been in the MASH movie. Hmm. Couldn't have been on television. MASH tent holds 10 guys, has a stove in the middle, very dangerous thing. When you're out in the field all day and you come back and you want to light the stove, it just doesn't light right up. You have to let oil drip in and you put a little bit of paper in and you have to be patient. You get it to light and finally it goes on. Well, we're not patient because we're freezing. So we come back and we load that stove and the stove is a little potbelly stove and it's got a big tube that goes up to the top of the tent and sticks out the top of the tent. When we go to light it, it takes forever to get it going. But because we've put too much oil in it, it's going to be overdone. So you know you're in trouble because the stove begins turning red. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's heating up too much. We don't call the fire department. <laughs> there ain't no fire department. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get outside of that stove and you watch the thing go up. And you'd be all of us are running in ten guys to get our stuff out of the tent because oh. that tent's finished. The next thing you know, we got all our stuff out and the tent's totally engulfed in fire. Wow! wow. Oh my oh gosh! My gosh! Wow. Hey, bring these guys another tent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happened all the time. Wow! And at night, the officers' club was able to serve hard liquor. The troops we weren't allowed to have hard liquor until we found ways of, you know, having it brought in from Japan. Mm. The one thing you never do is try to tell an American soldier what he can't do. <laughs> oh, I got a great story for you. Okay, there's four platoons of 10 guys in a platoon in each company of men, for argument's sake. So that means you have, if you have four platoons of 10, that's 40 guys. 30 are in front and one group is to replace anybody gets knocked out. And so the same thing worked on who's going to have a built-in place to go to the bathroom. All of that had to be dug by hand, okay? and it was a filthy mess. That went on all the time. So we had this, want of a better word, they were called piss tubes. <laughs> it was a plumbing tube that we put in to the ground on a 45-degree angle so that no matter how tall you were, you were able to go down into the tube and it would run there and you wouldn't have to worry about getting yourself soaking wet, okay? This one guy, I'm glad I forgot his name because I don't want to tell you his name. <laughs> he used to get up in the middle of the night, we're all asleep, and he'd go to the trash barrel we had in the middle of the tent. And that's where he'd urinate. By the time we woke up in the morning, there was a smell you wouldn't believe. <laughs> So we had to stop this guy, and we didn't want to hurt him. So this fellow we had, whose name was Gingy, who's an electronic whiz, anything electric he could do. So he wires up the trash barrel, puts enough liquid in the bottom. So when that guy urinates into that trash barrel, it immediately sends this shock up the line of Europe, oh. up the water, up to his, you know what? Oh. And we hear this, like that. 
and we're all <laughs> in a sleeping bags going like this. Yikes. He never did that again. I he bet he didn't. I bet he didn't. Woo! <laughs> Man. <God>. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Those are the stories. I don't think you saw that on MASH. I, I didn't see that on <laughs> no, MASH. No, no, I don't remember that one at all. No, I don't. Hmm. But since we have Igor here, Harvey, I have to ask, how was the food? <laughs> I don't think I could ever eat better. Really? Yeah. Everybody wanted to eat at any of our American installations. Hmm. Certain groups, as a matter of fact, the Canadians bought their food or what they call chow. They bought their chow from our American quartermaster. So the Canadians were eating American food and they fed their troops the same way. When I was doing this emergency Jeep driving thing, it reminds me now of because of the question you asked. I could go to any of the foreign troops, drive in there, and eat with them. One group I didn't want to eat with was the Brits, because Brits saved leftovers. Americans, even in the United States or in foreign countries, never saved leftovers. <laughs> it's given away or it's sold. Really, And that's still done to this day. Every so often on all the bases around the country, wherever you go, Every so often, you'll see a big crane come into the area, to the mess hall, and pick up these waste cans filled with leftovers. We call it slop, and it will go out to the farms oh. to feed all the animals in the, in the area. Wow. Okay. Now, wherever you are in the American service, when it comes to a holiday, New Year's, Christmas, any of the religious holidays, the United States flies in for the troops. Dinner or lunch. That's spectacular. <laughs> wow. We sit around the guys. We the best meals I've ever had in my life because the camaraderie was Thanksgiving. Yeah. Because we had the stopping off point in Japan, which was by airplane, it was like nothing. So from Japan, these planes would come in loaded with food, our mess halls. We'd have either for New Year's was a big holiday where the chefs all had foods flown in from Japan. And every place that American soldiers were stationed, we all had that same meal. It was a fun thing. I'm actually glad that the writers of MASH didn't understand that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had a job for nine years. <laughs> I would have been in trouble. Gee. I mean, you know, the joke of Igor serving all this terrible food that everybody hated, uh, apparently, is not necessarily true. No, it's not. It's not. Wow. The chefs, of course, when you're in basic training, one of the punishments is KP, yeah. which is kitchen police. That's what it stands for. And so you'd be in an area and you'd be peeling potatoes as a penalty or something like that. Then it got to the point where no one hand peeled potatoes anymore. It was all done by a machine. And uh, some of the chefs, remember, a lot of these guys were civilians that were drafted some of them were pretty damn good cooks. Gee whiz. Yeah, and the parents were sending enormous packages of things. Gosh. You know, this this is a real stunner. <laughs> Isn't it right? Am I not crazy? This is a stunning yeah. moment to learn that Igor was actually uh, not a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole Gee bunch whiz. of things, but let me tell you another story. So many, the guys who, uh, a lot of farm boys in the service. A lot of everything in the service, especially civilians. When they came into basic training, it was like a holiday for them. Farmers and their kids, they're up. 
four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, farmers opening for business, right? You get in the army, the guys who are from the city growers, they get up eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning. So being in the service is a shock. <laughs> but the farm guys were particularly good with animals. We had so many dogs that we were raising. Okay? And these were made like into guard dogs. When I went on guard duty, which we all had to do, regardless of what your position is, you had to do guard duty so you knew how to do it. So I was able to sleep on guard duty because of my dog, Barbara. <laughs> Barbara was trained by a farmer. No one trains animals like farmers do. Mm -hmm. Barbara understood English. <laughs> That's all there was to it. How he got her to do yeah. it, I don't know. But the thing that was very interesting, in the bloodline, the dogs couldn't stand Koreans. Wow. And this is something that no one ever talks about. But the fact of the matter is, Koreans, when they were starving, they were eating dog meat. Yeah. So some way, somehow, when a Korean, one of our guys who are assigned to us, the Korean word for these people that were assigned, they were called katusa. That, that, uh, don't ask me what that means. We just knew they were katusa. They took care of our tents and they were part of the military and stuff like that. But they had problems coming into a tent if one of our dogs was there. Because oh. then you'd hear the dog go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had so many that they put a limit on how many we could have in the company area. You're supposed to have uh, four or five they allowed. We had 120 dogs. Oh, 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 oh my wow. goodness gracious. Wow. Mercy. Well, they were eating well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the farmers were getting a big kick out of crossbreeding them. Oh, so my God. They had some of the most peculiar looking dogs. You know, <laughs> yeah. Guys we're all getting a big charge out of that. <laughs> but when I'd go on guard duty, there was Barbara snuggle up right next to me and I'd go to sleep. Wow. If somebody was coming in to inspect that guard area, which they do a certain amount of time, it was like the dog would nuzzle me. Wow. Good old Barbara. Good old Barbara. I, you know, I was in Korea in 1969. We did a USO tour in 1969 and 74. And uh, it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me because they were eating dog at that point in, in, in both, both periods of time. And it was kind of, kind of strange. In fact, there was a guy walking uh, about six dogs down the street. And I asked the people who were showing me around, hey, what are they, you know, is that everybody's got a dog walking job or what is that? I said, no, no, they're going to the kitchen. <laughs> mm. They're taking those doggies to the kitchen. It actually is disgusting. And it, it is, yeah. Another rule that we had, I don't know if MASH touched on it, we were not allowed to go to a Korean restaurant. Really? That's right. We were not allowed to eat any fruit that was grown in Korea. We were not allowed Why? to drink water came from a Korean well. Okay. Well, the water, you could tell. I mean, there's little orange things floating in the water. In the water, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we would have Lister bags. That's the official term. If you Google Lister bag, you'll see this canvas bag that each one of the company areas had. And that was that's what we were allowed to drink and fill our canteens up. I mean, who would want to drink things with things floating in it <laughs> other than the Koreans who didn't bother? So, you know, I, I have to ask you, you've, you've seen so many uh, officers in Korea and all of the, the various military personnel. 
been a very big part of it. Are there things about the characters of Hawkeye and Trapper and, you know, Hot Lips and all those people that you find really untrue or really very true that you really identify with? Did they get stuff right with you in terms of their behaviors? All of what you just said is accurate to a degree. When we read quotes by various writers, especially those who really made it as authors, it's okay to exaggerate a little. Mm -hmm. I think what we saw in MASH was some slight exaggerations Mm -hmm. in order to, it made it really interesting and more fun loving. The painful things could have been a lot more painful. Okay. The, The things that transpired between home and being in the service can really be painted some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So Harvey, the Korean war, the Korean conflict is oftentimes considered to be like the forgotten war because it's not one of the wars that kids learn a lot about. I I'm willing to bet that a lot of the American public probably has learned most of what they know about the Korean war from mash mm-hmm. as someone who lived it. Mm-hmm. What is something that people need to know about the Korean conflict that that they just don't know? Well, one, Koreans are human beings. I don't think I've ever heard anybody begin a, a characterization of the Korean conflict and say up front, like I'm saying, these are human beings. I didn't mention, but one of the things, they put me in charge of an engineer supply point for 8th Army. That's a huge thing. What they have at that supply point is absolutely gold. It was in a bombed out Japanese hospital from World War II. I slept in the operating room, had a bed. I had another bed for my houseboy that took care of everything. I never cleaned anything. That was the cleanest room in the place. (laughs) Attached to my engineer supply point was the Army quartermaster. So I stopped eating at our company mess hall. I had a free hand and I was getting my food from the quartermaster and entertaining all the officers in the area would come and have breakfast with me, steak and eggs from the quartermaster. Not a commonly known thing, but you put, as long as I'm taking care of other people in the American army, I'm I'm using your stuff. I'm not stealing. I'm reappropriating. That's what it said in the pamphlet. So I reappropriated. So, when I take over the engineer supply point, there were a couple of guys there, American guys, who didn't like the idea of me being in charge of them. But, you know, that's what else is new. And uh, we had all of these Korean guys assigned to us, and they're dressed in these padded outfits, which was like a Korean costume then, all of the padded material. By the way, it's an in style for men and women now to have quilted, they call it, quilted stuff. Koreans wore that. And Korean men who were enlisted by the United States Army to work for the United States Army were called chogis. They reported to work. They marched in to my engineer supply point, and they would take care of a whole bunch of things. So on the day that I take over, there's a guy who was telling a Korean chogi what to do. And the Korean guy was not responding. He couldn't speak English. So the American soldier kicked him. Well, not in my game. That stopped right there. 
I said some nasty things to this guy. I said, next time you're going to jail. I promise you. Those Koreans from that moment didn't know what to do for me. Okay? Just like us, they were taken from their life, from their homes, from their family, and they were common laborers. This guy's a doctor. This guy's a scientist. What about the fact their fathers and mothers, and these are human beings. That wasn't in MASH. I don't think you ever saw in MASH an American soldier kicking somebody. I did. It only happened once, never happened again, and the guy stayed away from me. Mm. Wow. Now, to preface this story, I don't know where the heck I'm going that day or why I'm going there, but I was assigned to get some information from an engineer, uh, from a, an airport. What the general public doesn't realize, the Army had more planes in the air over Korea than the Air Force did because of the hills. So they had these light Piper Cub planes flying in and out. Very few helicopters because the hillside and the drafts would come up. It's very dangerous for any large planes or anything like that. So we had word that the inspector general was coming into our company area to inspect that most likely he wasn't going to come to our company. He was just going to fly over it, right? An inspection by the inspector general is important to the company commander. Our company commander's name was Kid, and he was a captain, was his rank. So his name was Captain Kid, and he had a skull and crossbones flying from his Quonset hut headquarters. <laughs> 180th Infantry Division, he's in charge of intelligence and reconnaissance. Harvey's working for him, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And so we know that the inspector general is going to come by. Not to worry, I'm told, because he's not going to land in our area. So now keep that in mind, because I'm out on the road doing something that takes me into this really small airport. The guy running this little hole-in-the-wall airport, he says, do you need anything? I fly everything in here. And I look over on the side, and I see these cans of yellow paint. Well, anything the government buys is the best paint you'll find, or the best anything, because we don't have crap. So I said, well, those probably would have helped. He said, take them all. I don't want them here anymore, or something like that. So we load them onto my Jeep, and now I get back to the company area. I don't ask Captain Kidd for permission. I have a couple of my cronies. We take all of the trash barrels that we have in a company area, and they paint them yellow. <laughs> here comes the inspector general. And what I heard was, I want to stop there. He's in a plane. You, you don't just stop. You, you have to find a place to park. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. He comes in, and now he makes it a point to inspect the area. He comes on to the area, and he goes way out of his way, flying in to come on to our area. And what stood out and got him are all these yellow. <laughs> He's just the captain. Who's responsible for this? They point to me. <laughs> From the air, it looks so great that he couldn't wait to compliment the person who was responsible for it. And That's great. Captain Kidd was so pleased. 
These stories are quite mesh-like, mm-hmm. you know, because of the behavior and the fun and the humanity that's going on there is real and quite mesh-like. So you're telling what we've all seen on the television, and you're you're giving us a real true glimpse into the, the reality that that that's true. People did these things to evoke certain things, and they were all human beings relating to each other and trying to get through a very difficult time, obviously. Yeah, and uh, of course, to this day, uh, South Korea has blossomed. Yeah. And one of the most productive economically in the world. Mm -hmm. Without us, the American soldier, that couldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the best the United Nations have ever done, because regardless of what they said, those troops, with the exception of one group, the French, those troops wanted to be like us, clean, well-fed, really a vigorous army. Mm-hmm. Because we had such a cross-section of humanity. That's why I started this whole thing, by trying to give you some background without going on. You know, I'm, t- I'm doing a novel here where it really doesn't make any sense without bringing in the humanity of the thing. Thank you to Harvey Kalmanson and also Kathy, who was uh, in the background there. Uh, you didn't really hear from Kathy in this interview, but she was there and she was instrumental in getting us photos from Harvey's time in Korea, which you can see on the, the website matchmatters.com for this episode, episode 106, and getting us connected. I mean, Kathy did a lot of great stuff behind the scenes. So thank you, Kathy. Yeah, she really did. They're a great team. And this is not a, a big commercial for Kalmanson and Kalmanson, but it kind of is. These are two two really terrific people who have been through a lot. They know everything there is to know about the world of voiceover and show business and casting and everything. Not only that, but they're really smart. (laughs) They're real smart people with tremendous hearts and tremendous passion. So if you want to learn more about them, go to the website, calmanson.com and just kind of tour around because you're going to have a really good time and, and learn about two terrific people. I recommend doing it. They're great people. And we really appreciate Harvey and Kathy being a part of our uh, episode today. You can find links to their website and social media in the show notes for this episode at mashmatters.com. Also, some big news that we announced on our social media a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jeff, you're going to be uh, making an appearance here in just a few weeks. If you're listening to this in July of 2023, you have time still to get tickets to see Mr. Jeff Maxwell at the Tampa Bay Comic Convention. (laughs) Ah! Yes, sir. (laughs) The horn has been absent. Yes. You found it. It's very special (laughs) because of... This wonderful opportunity to be with my dear friends Loretta Swit and Jamie Farr at the Tampa Bay Convention Center in Tampa Bay. That's July 28th, 29th, and 30th. Yep. We have a special little thing for Mash Matters listeners, too. If you would like to buy tickets and if you would like to save money on tickets, yes. when you buy online, and, and we'll have the link to this also in our show notes, but it's tampabaycomicconvention.com. If you go there and buy tickets to get in, the admission tickets, and if you use the code at checkout, Mash Matters, all caps, one word, MASH Matters, you'll save 15% on admission. That's pretty good. Yeah, you know, it is. 15% is pretty darn good. And that's only for our listeners. MASH Matters, all caps, at checkout, say 15%, and hang out with Jamie Farr, Loretta Swit, and this guy, Jeff Maxwell, in Tampa Bay. Ah! 
All right. Want to let you know, too, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We'll be back with a new episode of Mash Matters. Hopefully, if all goes right, we'll be back August 15th with another episode for you. And uh, by that time, uh, maybe we'll have more news on the book. Who knows? Maybe the book will be out by then. We'll see. You know, Very possible. Very possible. Follow us on social media. We will let you know when that book, the, the, the newly revised cookbook, is available. And we've got some other cool things on the horizon, too. So, you know, don't want to tease too much, but I think we have some fun stuff that you're going to enjoy. Yes. Oh, you know what? We need to say hi to some folks because, you know, they support the show on Patreon. So it's only fitting that we give a shout out to some of our VIPs from Patreon. A salute to Private Matt Rupert. Private Robert Anderson. Corporal Lisa Cesare. Corporal Lisa Neville. Captain Christina Feldman. Captain Katerina Taleska. Major Derek Wade. And Major Abi Arakapudi. You know, this is a good place to put the disclaimer. We apologize for destroying, mangling any of the names. If we ever mispronounce any of your names, we're doing our best. We try. (laughs) But you did well. Thank you. What the heck? And that does it for this episode of MASH Matters. Uh, Have uh, And by the way, uh, Tampa Bay, certainly going to Florida, Tampa Bay, Florida, And I just want to let everybody know, I will not get near alligators or crocodiles. So don't worry about me. I'm not going to go out and play golf anywhere where they're running around and they're going to grab me or drag me into a river. I'm not going to do that. So don't worry, folks. I'm not going near any of the crocodiles. And until next time, here's looking up your old address. (laughs) 